All right, uh, we're going to get into the Word a little bit today. <clears throat> Just so you're aware, we are going to start a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. You familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Hallelujah. It is uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, three chapters, best sermon ever preached because Jesus preached it, so there's no need to critique it online. We know it's good stuff, Amen. right? <clears throat> no need to dispute uh, doctrine. We know it's good. And so we're going to look at it. We haven't looked at it. It's been about six years since I taught on it. We ought to get Jesus' sermon in there every, every so often. But I'm going to do something a little strange this morning. I'm going to start uh, kind of as a prequel to teaching into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start at the end, the last thing he says. And then we'll go back. And next time I speak, we'll start our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So perhaps you saw in the foyer, uh, Matthew 7, 24, we put it up on the wall. Right there, if you missed it, you probably have too many kids, because um, it's literally right there. Anyway, it says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, we did that because we are church on the rock. What rock? The Word of God. We are trying to build a house that is stable on God's Word. But I want you to see two things in this verse. There's two things that it says are required here, and this is important. This is going to seem uh, simple at first. It's going to seem maybe like I'm preaching to the choir. For some of you, you got this, and I am. But uh, there's some important distinctions here that we need to know as, uh, as the world challenges our faith more and more. You guys noticing that? So it says here, that whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. Note that it's a two-part equation. Hearing it, having good doctrine, being able to answer the questions right is not enough. Uh, we have to do them. And it says that if we will do those two things, that the result will be wisdom. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, that speaks of stability. So what we're looking for here is that hearing and doing His Word leads to the wisdom to live a stable life. Who here wants the wisdom to live a stable life? Who here likes a crazy life with lots of drama and... Okay, good. It's good there's no one, because I was going to start recommending other churches. All right. Anyway, uh, I want you to note that this is the last thing Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. So he spends three chapters telling us how to live life, and the last thing he says is, you should probably do what I just said, right? Because he's Lord. Now, so we're looking at hearing and doing his word, so we have wisdom to live a stable life. There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is also in Luke chapter 6. But it's the condensed version. It's the cliff notes. It's uh, only one chapter instead of three. But in the exact same place where he starts talking about building our uh, house upon rock or sand is this verse in this context. He says in Luke 6.46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Now, in case that's difficult to understand, what he's basically saying is, why do you bother to say, I'm your master, 
if you ain't going to do what I tell you. What's the point? What's the point, dude? It's uh, Jesus going, what's the point, dude? All right? So, here's what I want you to see, and this is important. Knowing who he is, that he is Lord, precedes understanding what he says or obedience. Knowing who he is precedes understanding what he says or obedience. Now, this is going to make more sense in a few minutes as I get into it, but uh, just to help you, uh, we have some parents in the room. So, parents, I want you to imagine that your child has asked you for the seventh or eighth time, why? Why do I? Why do we? Why? Why? And at some point, your answer is what? Let me hear it. (laughs) Bam! Because I said so. Right. Now, what's entailed in that answer is this. You're a child. I've explained it to you. You don't understand it. You can't understand it. I have 40 or 50 years of experience on you. You're not going to get it. Just believe me that I know what I'm doing and do it because I said so. Right? That's what all that means. If you don't understand that, children, that's what all that means. That's what because I said so means. It's at the point where you've asked too many questions and you really don't know what you're talking about. It's the most polite way your parents can say, just shut up. Right? This is that from God. He's, this is God's just because I said so. Because I'm Lord. Because I know what I'm talking about. Why are you going to call me Lord if you aren't going to do what I say? This is God's equivalent of because I said so. There's a whole lot he tells us to do that we may not fully understand why. And if we have to have understanding to obey, we are probably going to make some mistakes. Do you understand where I'm going here? So I want you to look at this. Now, then I'm going to show you an example in John chapter 6. We're going to see two responses to when you don't understand God. Because sometimes God says things or tells us to do things that we don't understand. Anyone uh, known it was God but didn't understand before? Did that happen to you? Happens to me fairly often, right? So it happened to all these people in John chapter 6. In John chapter 5, he gave them lunch. They were very excited. They followed him. They wanted lunch again. And he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this confused them. Now, we get that now because we take communion every month. We understand what it means. They did not. So let's look at their response. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 16 and 61. Then I'm going to jump down to verse 66. It says, therefore... Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? So the first problem is they don't understand what God's saying. Now, that would not necessarily be a problem unless it led to other things. All right? I'm okay with not understanding what God's saying. I can still go ahead and obey him. But they couldn't. Let's see where it led them. Uh, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, uh uh-oh, if my not understanding him leads to my complaining, I'm heading down a bad path. You understand? Why? Why are you, why God? Why God? Why God? Because I said so. Okay. When Jesus knew that in himself his disciples complained, he said to them, does this offend you? What was going on? 
they were offended at the Word of God. You ever been offended at the Word of God? If you haven't, you aren't reading it right. <laughs> Trust me, there's some offensive stuff in there because you know what it does? It's, it's living and active and it pierces to the vision of soul and spirit. And it'll get in there and it'll find stuff that doesn't like being told it's wrong. It'll offend us. They're offended. Does this offend you? Down to verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They saw him make uh, food for seven, feed food for 5,000. They saw him heal the sick. They saw all that stuff. They said, that we don't understand. If only he would quit saying things we didn't understand, we'd follow him. But we're out of here. You see the danger? Now, let's look at his disciples, his 12 disciples were sitting there. Let's look at their response because Jesus, uh, he turns to them a few verses later. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away also? I love the way Jesus gives an altar call. Follow me or don't. I'm God. You want to go? Go. That's how he does it. That's how he rolls. Then Jesus said to him, do you want to go away also? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I contend that Peter had no more understanding of what in the world he meant by eat my flesh and drink my blood than anybody else there. I guarantee you, Peter and the other 12 are looking at each other going, this is a hard saying. I don't understand it. I don't have a clue what he's doing. He just, we had a good church thing going here. He just blew it up. Our attendance just took a nosedive. You may have even taken an offering yet. Right? I guarantee they didn't understand. But here's what they knew. They knew that his words had life, and they knew that he was the Son of God. And they said, that's enough. And here's what I want you to get out of that. We obey, we stay, we keep following him because we know who he is, because we trust because of who he is, that he has more wisdom than we do, that he knows what he's doing, not because we understand why. Now, a lot in this message is going to be tailored for young people, because uh, just... Uh, well, it's not that old people are any less foolish. We can do stupid stuff too. Uh, it's just that uh, maybe we're older and there's less temptation to do stupid stuff. I don't know. Uh, but I want you to think about this. And, and, and I really uh, want you to think about how this plays out in the practical. How we obey because we know who he is. And we know he is wise. Not because we understand why. Uh, a good example is, if you're young here, uh, God's word tells you pretty clearly that you should find what you should wait, find one person, marry that person, then have as much sex as you want with that person, but only that person. Right? Pretty clear scripture. Anybody want to argue that one? No. Okay. Now people will. Now there are, and I could, I'm not gonna, I could spend a lot of time uh, telling you the reasons why that's a blessing, the reasons why that's better than the alternative choices. You probably don't understand all of those yet, right? And so here's the decision before you. 
am I going to do that because I understand why that's better for me? Or am I just going to believe that God in his word said this is the best way to do it and I'm just going to believe he knows more than I do and obey him? You understand how obeying when we don't understand because of who he is plays out. And it plays out in real life all the time. And we have these things going on all the time. Right? And so that's what I want you to see because that's what he's talking about when he says uh, hearing his word and doing it. Uh, and a lot of times what we want to do is go, well, if you'll explain it to me, he's kind of like that kid. Mom, why? Why do I? If you'll explain it to me, if you can convince me, I'm willing to do it. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus just goes, do you want to you leave too? <laughs> he doesn't do convincing. He just says the truth. Now, let's consider, uh, we've been talking about how we know who he is. We also have been talking about believing that he actually is smarter than us and knows what he's doing. And there are reasons why he's told us to do the things that he's told us to do. And I want to look at Colossians 2, verses 3 and 4, and then jump down to verse 8. And it says, uh, talking about the Father and Jesus, in verse uh, 2, in whom are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. How much? All. All wisdom and knowledge are hidden in them. Do we, do we agree? All right. So if we agree with that, then we feel like we should be able to trust what he says and just go, well, that's wise. I don't know why it's wise. But Jesus said it, so it's wise, right? And that's what he's asking us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, listen to where Paul goes from this. Why are you telling us this, Paul? Why are you reminding us that all wisdom and knowledge reside in Christ? He says, well, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Anybody trying to do that? Beware lest anyone cheat you because you have the source of all wisdom and knowledge. But you could, uh, people are going to come along and go, hey, here's some wisdom and knowledge. It's cheaper. Here you go. And they can cheat you with inferior wisdom and knowledge. Books and stuff all over the place. Here we go. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see what's going on. So Paul says, you got to know where wisdom resides because there is an active campaign to cheat you out of your wisdom to live life. It's going on. Knowing where the wisdom to live life resides, which is in him, protects us from active deception. And I keep saying that word active because it's not like, you know, you're good, you got a Bible, you know some stuff, you can just walk through life, and as long as you don't stumble into any holes, you're fine. No, no, no. Uh, deception is coming after you. They're throwing things in front of you, trying to trip you up. It's active. It's pursuing you. You have to be able to defend yourself against this kind of stuff, against uh, philosophy and deceit and traditions of men and basic principles of the world by knowing the wisdom that is in Christ, by finding it in His Word and doing it, even when I don't understand it, doing it, right? It's really hard. You know, this sounds simple, but the next time your enemy 
does something terrible to you, and the verse comes to mind, love your enemies, it's not that academic anymore. Now it's hard. Because I can think of lots of reasons why I shouldn't love that guy right now. And uh, what if I can't think of a good reason to love him other than God said to me? And I can't see it ending well. And I can't see it benefiting me. But God said to do it. Do I really believe he's smarter than me and his ways are better? That I should love my enemy? See how this stuff plays out. So, where was I? i got to find out where I was. Oh, here's one of the ways active deception is coming after you. How many of you have heard the term, term deconstructionism? Or de Anyone in college, you've heard this term, right? Uh, it's thrust at you. It's everywhere. Huh? Yeah, social media. It's all over the place. It sounds very intelligent because there's a lot of syllables. But uh, if, we, if we deconstruct this word, uh, it just means taking everything apart. <laughs> now, here's what's fun. If you try and look up the definitive deconstructionism, you can't really find one uh, because the whole point of deconstructionism is words may not really have meaning or may not have meaning in this context or may not have meaning there. So what you find is paragraphs that actually don't say hardly anything. And that's the definition of deconstructionism. Uh, trust me, I looked. I tried to find a concise one. All I was able to do was pull out a couple phrases that I think help you understand what deconstructionism is. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is very popular on all our college campuses. Again, young people, this is for you guys. You're going to be confronted with this. And uh, the, the tenets of it are, are just all through society, right? And the, the two phrases that I was able to pull out are textual criticism. In other words, uh, anything written down uh, is to be picked apart and criticized which means the Bible. By the way, Jesus never told us to critique his word. He seems to feel pretty confident that he's got it how he wants it. And he told us to obey it, study it, not critique it. There's a difference. The other term was language fluidity, uh, meaning stuff can mean different stuff at different times, depending on context and culture and the weather and whatever is going on. What that meant then might not mean what it meant now, and what that meant over here might not mean what it meant over there. And at the end of the day, you can almost make anything mean anything, or nothing means nothing, or anything. Or you can't write a definition of deconstructionism because words don't work, right? But here's the problem. They're applying that to the critique of Scripture. Now, this is an attack. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a concerted effort to take away the absolutes that are found in Scripture. And I want to show you something. Now, the origin of this is a French philosopher, go figure, named uh, Jacques Derrida. Derrida. I don't know how you say it in French. Uh, anyway, he wrote a book in 1967, and bam, in colleges all over, we have deconstructionism. I want to suggest to you that the origin of this uh, is in a book written much earlier in Genesis chapter 3. We're in a garden, and a serpent comes to Eve and says, Did God really say? Deconstructionism. Did God really say that? By the way, 
when this happens to you, the correct answer is yes, and I'm going to do what he said because he's smarter than me. You do what you want. Anyway, uh, that's not always the answer we give. So, Genesis 3.1, did God really say? And so the critique of Scripture becomes, the deconstruction of Scripture becomes just a series of repeating, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Did God really say I have to do that? Did God really mean I have to do that? Did he mean I could do this? What about the culture? What about, well, what about Paul? That wasn't Jesus, that was Paul. Well, Paul might have had a bad day. What was Paul's emotional state at that point? Do we know if Paul's psychologically capable of, right? You see where we end up. And pretty soon you can do whatever you want and hang on to God, sort of. Now, I am not saying we don't question. Uh, there's a good way and a bad way uh, to question. Uh, so if you're looking at Scripture and you want to understand it and you're, you're going, what does this mean? And I want to look at the Greek and I want to, I want to look at it in context. And I want to understand. That's one thing. It's another thing to go, uh, is this really the Word of God or is this just Paul? Is this really... Uh, you know, prophecy, or is this just Isaiah ate something weird? Uh, it's another thing to start to critique uh, the content and the, the clear principles that are outlined. And to start to say, well, they may not be culturally relevant anymore. All cultures come from God. Everything he says is culturally relevant, right? And so that's what we're in danger of. And again, what I want you to know is, uh, this isn't just out there, and you, you have to worry about this if you go get a philosophy degree. This is, they're trying to pull you in. They're trying to pull me in. They're trying to pull us into this discussion. Well, just discuss this with me. Just be open-minded. Just, does it really mean that, or could it mean this? And if I just use this one verse, and I turn it upside down, and I move this word over, it says this. And, and we end up there. Right? Now, I'm not exaggerating. You guys are seeing this going on, right? So here's the problem. Here's what I want you to see. Even when we're seeking understanding in God's Word, we've got a conflict. There is God's wisdom, and it is in conflict with our desires. Has that ever happened to you? You're reading God's Word, and you have, or you're praying, and you have a desire, and you have God's Word. And you have a desire, and you have God's Word. And they seem to be in conflict. And you're trying to figure out, how can I not let go of one of these and not have conflict? Anyone ever done that? Just me. Yeah. That's human nature. And so what do we do when we're seeking understanding, but God's wisdom comes in conflict with our desires? And this is where uh, I think you're going to begin to understand where I'm going. So... Uh, we see this in John chapter 8, verses 43 through 44. Uh, the uh, Pharisees are really not happy with Jesus, right? Now, the Pharisees knew the Scriptures better than anybody at the time, but they're not seeing Jesus as the Messiah. They're, they're in control. They like the, the, they like the place of authority. They like the position of honor. And Jesus is threatening all that they desire. Are you with me? And so Jesus is answering them here and he says, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able 
to listen to my word. Catch that. They don't, it's not like we don't understand the language. They're not able to understand what he's even saying. Why aren't they able? Let's find out. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. That is the problem. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Here's what's going on. They have the desire to be in a position of authority. Their desire has put them under the allegiance of Satan, the father of lies. Right? Now they can't even understand what the Messiah, God, the ruler of the earth, is saying because they've already chosen a different Lord because of their desire. You see what's going on? And so what I want you to see is we don't understand and then choose to obey. Establishing lordship determines our very ability to understand. If we don't understand, I'm sorry, if we don't establish Jesus as our Lord in every sense, i.e. we do what he says, we will lose the ability to understand and we'll make poor decisions. And I've seen this a lot. Uh, I've seen people try and keep both and they end up, uh, I'm a Christian who believes I can do this or I'm a Christian who believes I can do that, Right? All over the place. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Are you with me? The problem is when our desires are in conflict with the word of God, our desires are strong. And if we don't establish that we're going to obey before we have understanding or even against our own understanding, uh, we're going to be in trouble. And here's the trouble. Uh, and where you see this, again, I said uh, establishing his lordship is what determines our ability to understand. We see this in John chapter 3. In 3.16, you know, God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son. Verse 17, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but, the world, but that the world would be saved. Verse 19, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, because they had evil desires. And verse 20, they would not come to the light lest their deeds would be exposed. You see what's going on there? Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I didn't come to condemn you. You condemn yourselves when I offer you light and you say, no, thank you. I like my darkness. My desires are over here. I'm not coming into the light because I can't bring my desires there. Right? You follow me? And so this goes on, and what we find, we have a whole Christian subculture that's looking for a way to have one foot in light, one foot in darkness, and have my desires and have Jesus. And that's going to stretch you at some point, and you have to make a choice. And this is why, you know, the Bible talks about there being a great falling away. And so it comes down again to just simple, practical choices that we make. So you, someone does something, and you go... I have the, you don't understand what they did, Pastor. 
I have the right to be offended. Yeah, sure you do. You have the freedom to forgive them in Jesus, and that's wiser. And I could try and explain to you why and all the benefits of it, or you could just trust Jesus because he said to forgive them. But yeah, you have the right. If you want to hang on to that and stay in your darkness, you don't have to come into the light. You can stay over there. He won't condemn you. Uh, you just get to keep your darkness. You get to keep your bitterness. You get to keep your offense. Right? It's all in us. We get to decide, is he really smarter than I am? Is it really to my benefit to forgive that jerk who did that terrible thing to me? Right? It's actually to my benefit. It's not just God making me do it in some kind of weird religious torture. Well, it's a thought. James talks about this in chapter 1, where he says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. I would be immune to temptation if I didn't want so many things. Right? And you too. It's our desires that are played upon. And that's what did God really say? Remember what they had? It was just a fruit. Just a fruit. They had all kinds of fruit in the garden. But it was desirable to make one wise. She desired that fruit. And Satan played on it. Did God really say you couldn't have that desire? Let me tell you why that's wrong. Anyway, same devil. Same, did God really say? Same issue with desires. We just have different fruit now. Amen? All right. James says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now, thankfully, he gives the solution just a few verses later, verses 21 through 22. You ready? Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, meekness implies some humility that God might be right, might be smarter than us, and we might be wrong. And the implanted word implies that we don't just hear it, but we're actually letting it get in us. We're actually meditating on it and thinking about it, maybe even memorizing it and letting it get in us and let us work on us on the inside. So, received his meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. He says, but, there's a warning, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Did you catch that? So the same thing Jesus is saying. We've got to do it. We can't just hear it. And he says that if we hear the word and are not willing to do it, and this really is a heart thing, then what will happen is we will end up in self-deception. Now, the problem with self-deception is at some point you don't any longer know you're being deceived because you're the deceiver. You're deceiving yourself. If we, and that's what we were talking about earlier, all these people who try to find a way to keep their desires and keep Jesus, and they end up in self-deception. I'm okay. I'm all good. I got Jesus, and I got the stuff I wanted to do also. I'm okay. Right? And so he says we will end up in self-deception. What is that self-deception? What's that look like? Well, I'll tell you what I think. Uh, just in my experience, here's what I think that looks like. I think it looks like uh, people who have enough God to live my life my way, but with His blessing. 
Now, that's an illusion, by the way. But that's a goal. What do you want uh, out of your church? Well, I want enough God to live my life the way I want to live it, to pursue the things I desire, and to be blessed while I do it. And God's kind of my little helper. He blesses me because he loves me while I do what I desire. Now, no one out there is a Christian believing that, right? You think? I'm telling you, he may not put it like that. So, this is the self-deception of hearing the word but not doing it. We begin to think we're okay with just doing some of it or just believing the right doctrine but not actually living it out in our lives. And we end up in a place where he isn't really Lord. We're under, you know, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? He isn't really the source of all wisdom because we're willing to consider lots of other sources of wisdom. Uh, like, you know, at some point where TikTok is your source of wisdom, you really need to consider <laughs> uh, the word. And we just want his help. He's just our little helper, right? We're going, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, he's not really Lord. He's not really my source of wisdom. He's a source of some wisdom. But I just want his help. I just want him to bless me. I, I prayed. I believe Jesus. I believe he's God. I just want him to bless me while I live my life and do what I want. Is that too much to ask? Well, we have an active devil who will play on that. And here's where the danger comes. The danger of that is that it will probably end for anyone who takes that path of just enough God to be blessed. It will probably end in offense and in blaming God. And you'll end up mad at him because you made a deal he didn't make and you're going to be upset when it doesn't pay off the way you thought it would. And uh, by the way, we have an ancient tradition for this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it starts with, with God, did God really say? And then there's a fruit, and then Eve eats, and then Eve gives it to Adam, and Adam eats, and then God comes in the garden and says, what's going on in here? And in verse 12, Adam says, God, the woman that you gave me, gave me some fruit, and I ate. I think you share some blame here. <laughs> See it? It's hardwired into us. It's God's fault. God gave me that woman. She made me eat that fruit. Okay. Sorry, girls. <sighs> Where am I at? All right. All right. I love Proverbs 19.3 because it so describes so much of my pastoral experience. You ready? The foolishness of a man twists his way and his heart frets against the Lord. I do stupid stuff. It twists my way. I experience the consequences of my stupid stuff and I get mad at God for the consequences of my stupid stuff. God, why aren't you blessing me? Why are bad things happening to me, God? And I can't even understand when God tries to tell me it's because you're doing stupid stuff. Quit doing stupid stuff. Do it my way. It's right there. The foolishness of man twists his way. 
his heart frets against the Lord. I see this again and again and again. People mad at God because things didn't work out the way they thought. I could have told them it was going to work out that way because it was so easy to see, right? You guys experienced this? Yeah. Telling you, he knows better than us. We should just trust him and do his word. Here's what I want you to get. The big lie out there is that God's blessing means bad things don't happen to his people. He's my helper. Uh, if I'm good with God, bad things won't happen to me. Uh, that has not been my experience. In fact, that's exactly the opposite of what he's saying in Matthew 7 and in Luke 6. And that whole little parable he tells about the guy who built his house on the rock. What, do you, what does he say is coming? Storms. Storms. Are they coming to just the sandy house? Nope. They're coming to both houses. Right? Storms are guaranteed. That's the point of that passage. God doesn't present, prevent life's storms. Life's storms will come. What he's saying is he will enable us to stand in those storms if we'll build our life on doing his word. That is the point of that whole parable, that life storms will come, but he enables us to stand if we are doers of his word. He doesn't guarantee our circumstances, that's outward. And so if you've been believing that being blessed means all your circumstances are going to be good, you better buckle up. There is a devil out there. He doesn't guarantee our circumstances. He guarantees his word will work in us in any circumstance. That however bad your circumstances get, you'll be able to stand if you've built your life on doing his word. In fact, when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that most of it is about dealing with our hearts. Most of it is about making us unshakable on the inside. So when the outside shakes, we can stand. So that we're still standing when the storm blows through because we built our house on the rock of doing His Word, not on the sand of hearing it, but not doing it. That's the clear message of that parable. Amen? All right, you feel like you've had enough? Okay, well then, since you asked, <laughs> I do have one more verse that I want to read, and I like this one, and this sort of sums it up, why I want you to pay the order, attention to the order of this. In John 14, verse 21, Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, so it's the same thing, you've heard my word and you're doing it, Right? It is he who loves me. Now, he's not saying you prove you love me by doing my word. He's not asking for you to, you know, guys up there going, oh, you love me, huh? Prove it. He's saying, if you love me, you'll want to do my word. I'll be able to tell you love me because you'll believe I'm smarter than you and you'll, <laughs> you'll do things my way. All right, so anyway, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How many of you want God to show himself to you? All right? 
So let's look at the order of this. It doesn't start with, I understand. It starts with, I understand who he is and what he's done for me, and I love him. And from there, it goes on to, because I love him, I obey him, because I believe he knows what he's doing. And from there, it goes on to, he loves me back, and he begins to manifest himself. Now, my experience is that as I love him, and I do his will, and he manifests himself, now I begin to get understanding as he begins to interact with me. It doesn't start with me understanding and going, oh, I understand why I should do that. Yep, I'll obey. It starts with me just going, I love you. I'm going to do it your way. He shows up and I go, oh, that's why you had me do it like that. Oh, this does work better. Anyway, that's the way I learn. Usually, I just have to do it. And then, you know, months or weeks or years later, I go, oh, God really was smarter than I am. Look how good that worked out, right? So we do because he said so, because he is all wisdom, because he is Lord. <clears throat> As we get into the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to challenge us, guys. There's a lot of hard stuff to do in there. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, things like that. We're all going to decide, am I actually going to do this stuff? Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to get right back to this verse. And Jesus is going to say, uh, why are you going to call me Lord unless you do what I say? Amen? All right, let's have the band up. <sighs> okay. Is that fun? It's important, I think, that we get this stuff. It seems basic, but we're in a culture is trying to talk us out of this. And it really is okay if our answer to that culture is just, look, I know Jesus, and uh, he's smart, and I trust him, and I'm just going to do it his way. And you do what you want. And that'll challenge him. Right? Yeah, All right. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for so many things. Uh, Lord, as I just sit and think about all you've done, Lord, that you, that you died to save us, that you've given us eternal life. But then beyond that, it, you've given us through your word, uh, Lord, so many clear proofs that you've been at work from day one and that you will be at work until the end of it all. Uh, Lord, that you are shaping everything according to your will. Lord, you've given us promises, precious promises, that through them we can partake of your divine nature, that we can have hearts that live like you. Lord, that we really can, in the midst of anything, live a life of stability and wisdom in you, even if we're in jail, even if we're being persecuted. Lord, that uh, you are able to keep us. Lord, that you... Uh, have us already living with an eye towards eternity. Lord, we are so thankful that we can know these things, that we can be secure in these things. Uh, Lord, you said the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be secure. Lord, that we are free 
from the snares of being afraid of what people think about what we think. That's good. We are secure in you. We are so thankful for your word. It is so good. It is so wise. Lord, your ways are so much higher. Lord, just give us grace to be an obedient people, to live under the blessing of obedience. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Lord, I'm thankful for these people. Thankful for these people that want to know you, that want to obey you, that want to glorify you with their very lives. <laughs>